I don't know about you, but there are times when I feel lacking when it comes to my prayer life. How many others? Oh, yeah, I see hands, so that's, I'm in good company. You know, there are periods when I feel like I don't do it enough. There are times when I feel like my prayers aren't being answered the way I would want. There are times that it seems routine and not from the heart. And I know that says a lot about me and my spiritual growth that still needs to take place. Don't get me wrong, there are times when, when it's good and I feel, feel like things are, are, are going the way they should. But overall, I'd say I, I lack consistency in my prayer life. But we're going to be looking again today at one that had a perfect prayer life. We're going to be in John chapter 17. We're going to finish what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks in John chapter 17. We're going to be looking at verses 20 through 26 today, if you want to be turning there. If you were here two weeks ago when we began this, you'll remember hopefully the context of the passage. Jesus is in the upper room. He's there with the disciples. They have just partaken of the Last Supper. He has gone through that example of servitude, of washing their feet. He's been telling them these sobering truths about the fact that he is going to die. He is going to leave them. And that's kind of the setting. And then he turns upward. And the Bible says he looks upward to heaven and he begins to pray. And that's what we've been looking at the last couple of weeks. Two weeks ago, when I started this, if you'll remember, we said that the prayer could be broken down into three sections. Section 1, verses 1 through 5 was Jesus praying for himself. Verses 6 and beyond, I think through 19, is Jesus' prayer for his disciples. And then in verse 20 of chapter 17, he begins to pray for all believers, all that would, would become believers, even in the future. And then as we looked at that, we saw in the first section truths about Jesus and his role in the redemption story that God had laid out. In the second section, we saw two requests that Jesus made for the disciples. He prayed for God would protect them, to keep them, and not let them fall away. We saw, number two, that God would sanctify them, that he would set them apart, that he would make them holy and consecrate them to the task of being an apostle. And we know that that's true because the apostles turned the world upside down and none of them fell away. They almost, most of them died a martyr's death. And now today we come to verses 20 through 26 where Jesus not only prays for the disciples but for all who would be believers, which includes us. And as I thought about this, the thought came to me that if Jesus cared enough to pray for all believers, including you and me, how should we approach that? How important would the topic of his prayer be to us? That Jesus, out of all the things he could pray for, these are some of the requests he makes that are written down for us to see. And needless to say, I think it's if Jesus felt burdened enough to pray for us that we ought to pay attention to what he had to say. So let's do that. Let's read verses 20 through 26 and see what Jesus has to say to the Lord on our behalf. Chapter 17, beginning in verse 20. Jesus' words, he says, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. 
The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one just as we are one. I in them and you in me, that they may be perfected in unity, so that the world may know that you sent me and loved them even as you have loved me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am, so that they may see your glory which you have given me. For you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, although the world has not known you, yet I have known you, and these have known that you sent me, and I have made your name known to them, and will make it known, so that the love with which you loved me may be in them, and I in them. So in these words that Jesus prays, I think I saw two straightforward requests in Jesus' prayer. The first one, he begins right off in verse 21. He says that they may all be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. He repeats the theme again in verse 22. The glory which you have given me, I gave to them that they may be one. And then he makes it very clear in 23. He says, I in them, you in me, and that they may be perfected in unity. So what is the prayer that Jesus has for us? That we be unified. As a body of believers. Jesus is praying for our unity. And as I studied this. I saw three facts. About this unity. That were represented in these verses. When you were studying in school. Sometimes you looked at things. As you studied by the what, where, when, how and why. We're going to look at the where. The what and the why of unity. Where it began. What it actually is. And why it's important. So we'll begin with where it began. He said, I do not ask on behalf of these alone, but for those who also believe in me through their word. Talking about the disciples. Jesus' prayer is not just for his disciples. He looks into the future and he sees that all that the Father has given him throughout time, all who would eventually have faith. And Jesus knows that the root of these future believers' faith begins right here with the disciples who are in this room. They would be the instruments of delivering these life-saving words that Jesus has brought to them. These ones who he's just prayed for will be the ones to which would begin the task of taking the good news to the whole world. It would be through them that all believers, even thousands of years later, would hear the gospel message. And I thought about this. I thought about a lot of the other religions in the world, especially all the false religions like the Jehovah Witnesses. Do you know who their founder was? Charles Russell was the founder of Jehovah Witnesses, and that was in 1879. He started writing the Watchtower magazine. Joseph Smith, I heard someone say, was the founder of what church? The Mormon church. You know, when that was started, that again was 1800s, 1830. Supposedly he had revelations and began what would be called the Mormon church. Right here in Clearwater, we are home to the great church of Scientology. You know, when they started, they're not even very old. 1953 by L. Ron Hubbard. Many cults and false churches are relatively new. There are some very old religions, though, like Islam, which was started in the 7th century, around 610 A.D., by Muhammad, who claimed to have received words from an angel. And, of course, you have Judaism, which goes all the way back to the Old Testament. But although the one true God partially revealed himself in the Old Testament through the prophets, he revealed himself perfectly through Jesus Christ. 
And it's his son has spent the last three years of his life training these disciples who are in this room with him. And these disciples are the ones that are going to take the word to the rest of the world. And all future generations who are going to become saved will do it because of the disciples' ministry that began right here. Of course, officially in a few, about two months from now at the day of Pentecost. That's when the actual church began. So all throughout history, Christians are only saved by one way. It's by the Word of God, which was started by Christ and as He revealed God perfectly and then was written down and, and, and taught by the disciples and the apostles. Romans ten seventeen says, So faith comes by hearing, and hearing by what? The Word of God. It is Christ's words that bring faith. But someone has to be the bearer of these words. And the disciples were where it all started. Along with Apostle Paul, these men would turn the world upside down and all believers of all times can trace their spiritual roots back to this moment. These men would be the bearer of the gospel message. That's why their words are so important. Many today want to make up their own gospel. They want to pick and choose what they want to believe. Galatians 6, 1, 9 addresses that. Paul said, as we have said before, so I say again, if any man is preaching to you a gospel contrary to what you received, he is to be accursed. And I thought about that on a serious note. How many people today are accursed because they are preaching a, a gospel contrary to the one that the, that the disciples were going to take into the world? It's a very sobering thought. But this is where it begins. The, the unity that Jesus is praying for that we would have begins with the disciples at this time as they shared the word with the world. The second fact about this unity is the what. What actually is it? What is biblical unity? Verse 20 through 23 describe what it is that Jesus is praying for. It says that they may be one, even as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you sent me. The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one, I and them and you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. I was impacted by the fact that of all the things that we need prayer for, Jesus chose unity to be the main topic of his prayer for us. I could think of so many things that I need prayer for. And that's not one I often ask. His Father, give me unity. But that's one that Jesus foresaw that we really needed. And I think that should say something to us. First, as we begin to talk about what unity is, I wanted to say a word about what it is not. We live in a time when many people who claim to be Christian are really passionate about this point and are willing to compromise much For the sake of unity, I once sat under a pastor who thought like this. His philosophy was that the common denominator was Jesus and his love and nothing else mattered. We ought to just be unified even even if we disagree on everything. He didn't believe that several of the chapters in Genesis were true, that they were metaphorical, which kind of basically allowed him not to believe in creation and other things. And if you challenged him on that... He would just say, that's not important. What's important is Jesus and his love. And many people over the years have fallen into that, finding the common denominator, which would be Jesus, and then focusing on that and forgetting about all of that. 
But I want you to know unequivocally that being unified is not about looking for the lowest common denominator and then grabbing a hold of that and letting go of everything else. And we'll talk about that more in a minute. But this whole movement, actually some of it has a name. I guess it's revealed itself in several ways, but one of it is called the ecumenical movement. If you've heard of that phrase, it's basically something that was brought about by the Catholic Church and the World Council of Churches. And they basically grab a hold of anything that calls themselves Christian and say, let's just wrap our arms around this and work together and... You know, we all believe in Jesus and they throw everything else. They even quote the words that we read in this chapter as part of their defense of that, that we all be one. Many famous pastors and teachers over the years have taught that and grabbed a hold of that. I'm not going to list names, but it's been very prevalent in the last 30 or 40 years for that to happen. So we have to define, if that's not unity, what is real biblical unity? Jesus didn't exactly define it here for us, but what he did do was give us an example to look to because what did he reference as he looked at this? He referenced the unity that the Father and the Son had. So we have a pattern to look at. Look again at verses 22 and 23 at some of the ways he gave us a pattern. He said, The glory which you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one, just as we are one. I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Do you see the pattern? The unity of believers should be patterned after the unity between the Father and the Son. So that's what we're going to have to come to an understanding of to understand what this unity is that we are to have with one another. It should be patterned after the unity that the Father and the Son had. So as I looked at this, I basically stayed within the passage of chapter 17 and saw within this five patterns that exist between the Father and the Son just within this chapter. And I'm sure there's probably more. But the five I came away with, number one, is that we are united in purpose. Verse 1 of chapter 17, we've studied a few weeks ago, says, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son that the Son may glorify you. When we are united in purpose, when we glorify God, that was Jesus' mission on earth. That's our mission on earth. That's our purpose is to glorify God. When somebody asks a Christian, what's your purpose? Our response is to glorify God. And that is the purpose that even Jesus had. That's a pattern that we are to emulate. Verse 4, he said, I glorified you on the earth, having accomplished the work you have given me to do. So as Jesus began his prayer, he showed us that his main concern was the glory of God the Father. And everything he did throughout his ministry was for that purpose. And all believers are to follow that example in their own lives. That is our purpose on the earth as well. Another scripture that came to mind was 1 Corinthians 10.31, which says, Whether then you eat or drink, whatever you do, do all to the glory of God. Now in context, that was a passage where they were talking about eating meat that was sacrificed to idols. And he was saying that it's great to glorify God by always obeying God, but there are even times when you can glorify God by setting aside what you know you're free to do for the sake of your brother. That is showing a unity and purpose to glorify God. So the first example of the oneness we are to model and be unified is in purpose. And that's to glorify God. The second 
thing I see from this passage is that we are united in mission, which is to seek and save the lost. And in context of this chapter, it's the ones that Jesus had given him. We are to seek those and share the word with those so that they will come to the Lord. As Jesus prayed for the disciples in verses 6 through 19, the last time we looked at the mission that Jesus had, that God's eternal plan was for him to come and to live the sinless life, to become the sacrificial lamb, and to redeem a people for himself. That was his mission. And then look at verse 8. He says, For the words which you gave me, I have given to them. They received them and truly understood that I came forth from you, and they believed that you sent me. Jesus shared his words with them. And then on down, he says that he has sent them into the world. So we can see that that mission is the same. If you look back to chapter 14, verse 10, Jesus said, Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Thy words that I say to you, I do not speak on my own initiative, but the Father abiding in me does his works. Jesus never said anything that wasn't directly from the Father. Our goal as believers is to share that same message. The message that Jesus shared came from the Father. The message we share comes from Jesus and the Father. It's all unified as we seek to save the lost of this world, to spread the good news. So our purpose is to glorify God. Our mission is to evangelize the lost. And number three, we are united in truth. Jesus and the Father were united in truth. What is truth? He describes it for us. In verse 17, he says, what? Thy word is truth. God is truth because he is an embodiment of truth. He is truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth. Jesus was always sharing the words of the Father. We should always be sharing the true words of the Father. That's one of the things that when you look at the ecumenical movement and the people that want to be unified in love, they want to kind of leave this one out. They want to kind of leave this third point out because they're not united in truth. Truth is kind of irrelevant to them. It's whatever you want it to believe. But Jesus always sought out the truth. We are always commanded to live in obedience to the word. Thy word is truth. True biblical unity is built upon several pillars, one of which is the truth of Scripture. I'm not talking about being unified on all the non-essential things. I mean, what are some of the things that churches can continue to battle with as far as the things that might cause disunity what are some of the more prominent things music I heard somebody say whether you play drums in the service or not those things aren't written in black and white in scripture and we we lend freedom to those we can be unified on those but when you talk about how are you saved is it by faith or works You have to be unified in what the scripture says, the black and white issues. So I think that's important to remember. So our purpose is to glorify God. Our mission is to save the lost. We're also united in truth. And the fourth point would be that we are united in righteousness and in holiness. In verse 11, Jesus addressed God as the Holy Father. Verse 25, he addressed him as righteous father. 
We know that God is holy from the early writings in the Old Testament all the way through the book of Revelation. We see the attributes of God's holiness. God cannot be in any way associated with sin. It is in conflict with his very nature. And we know that Jesus was the only sinless man to ever walk the earth. In him there was no sin. That's how he could be the sacrificial lamb. So we see that example between the father and the son that they were united in righteousness. Now we know it's not possible for us to be completely united in righteousness, but we are united in righteousness. One, we have imputed righteousness. God no longer sees our sin in the sense that he doesn't hold it against us. So all believers are united in that way. But we are also united in a striving to be righteous. And we should be coming more righteous. For a Christian to say that he has imputed righteousness, but for his life to never correspond to that, to never get more sanctified, to never improve, would be probably an indication that the person might not really be saved. Because the Bible is very clear that as we become more closer to the Lord, we are becoming more sanctified, more like his son in his image, not just spiritually, but physically as well. We are united in believers and righteousness, both imputed and also in application in our physical lives. And last but not least, we are united in love. Our fifth way that I see that we are united, verse 24 says, For you loved me before the foundations of the world. Throughout Scripture, we are told of the Father's love of the Son. When you think back to his baptism and the transfiguration, God had dressed him as my beloved son. This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. In the same way that the father and son are united in love, we are bound together with them and one another in love. John 13:35 says, By this all men shall know that you are my disciples, that you love one another. There should be a unity of love between believers that goes way beyond explanation. Many times, as I've said before, it's closer than family. Do you remember on the day of Pentecost some of the things that happened? And I'm not referring to the tongues of fire or the miracle of hearing the Peter's words in their own language. But do you remember what happened after that? Turn over to chapter 2 of Acts. There's a place there that really gives an indication of what it should be like, this unity between believers. Chapter 2 of Acts, I'll read verses 41 through 47. So then those who had received his word were baptized, and that day there were added about 3,000 souls. And here's what happened afterward, verse 42. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind, in the temple and breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness, sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. Now, I'm not saying that's necessarily a model for the church, but that is definitely an example of the biblical unity being displayed by the believers, is it not? Would that not have been something that would 
astonish all the rest of the world as they saw this group of people behaving that way. But is that possible on a long-term basis? Is that type of unity possible? We think about the church today and we think, could we ever get to that point where we were actually living like that? It didn't even last for the disciples very long. If you look back in chapter 6 of Acts, if you flip over from Acts 2 to Acts chapter 6, you don't have to go very far that you'll find if you skim over that section in chapter 6, you'll find that the Hellenistic Jews, those were the Greek-speaking Jews, were arguing against the Hebrews, complaining that their widows were not being taken care of. So there was already disputes and arguments going on. It didn't just say that they had a need that that rose up. It actually says that they were complaining. One group was complaining to another group about what was going on. So you see that even in the beginning there was disunity. Jesus knew in his prayer the problems that the church was going to have with disunity. In Galatians 2, there's another passage. You remember the story where Peter was fellowshipping? Well, actually, just look there. We have time. Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 through 13. I'll just read those. But when Cephas, which was Peter, came to Antioch, I opposed him to his face. That's Paul speaking. Because he stood condemned. For prior to the coming of certain men from James, he used to eat with the Gentiles. But when they came, he began to withdraw and hold himself aloof, fearing the party of the circumcision. The rest of the Jews joined him in hypocrisy, with the result that even Barnabas was carried away by their hypocrisy. So you can see here's a dispute where the Apostle Paul actually had to come and address one of the leaders of the church, the Apostle Peter. So I say that to say this, that we're fallible The early church didn't have anything over on us that the same mistakes we made, they made. Jesus knew that. That's why his prayer was for our unity. The early church wasn't perfect and and the church today is not perfect. But I also was reminded it was not a salvation issue. And those issues that are non-salvation issues, we need to have unity. Other things that are salvation issues, Peter needed to be addressed because his theology and his actions were not in line with Scripture. So we are to have unity, but there are times when we have to follow other Scriptures and we have to address things. But I repeat, Jesus' prayer for us to be in unity is not a prayer to find the lowest common denominator and forget the rest. We are to be unified in purpose, To glorify God, we are to be unified in mission, to evangelize the lost. We are to be unified in truth, holding the scripture up. We are to be unified in our attempt to live a sanctified and holy life, to be righteous. And we are to be unified in love as exemplified by Jesus Christ. We are to be unified. That's how we are to be one in Jesus and God all wrapped up together is to be unified on all these fronts, not just one or two of them. So we've seen where it began. We see what biblical unity is and now the why. Why is this important? And it's pretty spelled out for us pretty plainly. Verse 21 says that they may be all be one as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us. Why? So that the world may believe. And he repeats it again. In verse 23, 
I and them, you and me, that they may be perfected in unity. Why? So that the world may know that you sent me. What happens when there are divisions and strifes and quarrels in the church? When unbelievers see this, what happens? It's a horrible example. Do they think that we're different? Have you ever heard somebody say, Christians are no different than us? And those type of examples destroy our witness because they think we're just another social club. We're just a crutch that we need to have. They don't see the power of the gospel in our lives when we, when we do those things. I don't know if any of you have been through a church split. Have any of you actually been at a church that's been through a church split? Yeah, lots of hands. I don't want to get into the doctrinal issues, but were, there, were the reasons doctrinal or were they other reasons? Power struggles or what are some of the reasons that the church split? Anybody want to share? No specifics, no names, just going through a divorce. Anybody else? Power struggles. I've seen that in my own life where the elders want things this way and the pastor don't want this thing and they just can't get along and they tend to want to try to push somebody out so this group can control or whatever. When you start thinking about those things, those things Jesus would not be very happy about. Now, if it was a, an important doctrinal issue, that's one thing because we are to hold the word in truth. But if it's non-essential things, if it's selfish and, and power and pride or those things are involved, then I think those are the kind of things that would really break the heart of our Lord. I wrote down Ephesians 4, 1 and 3 to read. I know the first verse, but I don't remember 2 and 3. Ephesians chapter 4, verses 1 and 3 says, Therefore I, the prisoner of the Lord... Implore you to walk in a manner worthy of the calling with which you have been called. With all humility and gentleness, with patience, showing tolerance for one another in love. Being diligent to preserve the unity of the spirit and the bond of peace. And all of scripture reinforces this truth. That's why we are told in places like Matthew 5 that if we have a brother that has something against us to leave our gift at the altar and go be reconciled. That's why we're told in 1 Corinthians 8 not to let your freedom get in the way. If this would cause another brother to stumble, then don't do it, even if you have the freedom to do it. All of those teachings correspond to this because we are to keep the unity of believers as a high priority. That's why in Scripture, when you think about the one another passages, I, I used to have a list. I couldn't find it. There's so many of them. We're told to be kind to one another, to love one another, Forgive one another, serve one another, encourage one another, don't complain against one another, don't grumble against one another, be at peace with one another. And I know there's many more. When we are unified in all of these ways, Scripture tells us that the world's going to take notice. If we lived out the Scripture the way the Scripture tells us to, the world would take notice. Many times we take the non-essentials and turn them into unreconcilable differences and arguments. And that's not the example of Jesus gives us. And the, Jesus and the Lord and God were always unified. And that's our example. This was a good reminder for me that the world may believe that you sent me. That was a good reminder to me. We shouldn't want to hinder the world from knowing God and knowing Jesus. 
So that's the first prayer request that Jesus had for all believers, that we be unified. And I think we should take that very serious because that's the recorded prayer of our Lord asking the Father to keep us unified. But the second thing comes in verse 24 of John chapter 17. And that is our future glory. Look at chapter... 17 verse 24 he said father I desire that they also whom you have given me be with me where I am so that they may see my glory which you have given me for you loved me before the foundation of the world as I studied this I was reminded although heaven the physical place is a wonderful and glorious place it is not the place that is the emphasis of the wonder and glory but it's the people that make up this place. I look back over my own life and I think about some of the houses I've lived in. And the first house I lived in was a little two-bedroom frame house with a wood floor furnace that heated the whole thing. And that is just as dear to me as the one we had on seven acres in the woods that was like a wildlife preserve. But none was more important to me because it was my wife and my children that resided in that house that made the house a home. And you compare that to heaven. It's not the streets of gold or the clear sparkling water streams or whatever it's going to be there, although they're going to be marvelous when you think about that. That's not what the emphasis is on in Scripture. The emphasis is on who is there. In many places, we don't have the time to go and look at them, but many places in Scripture refer to this. When you think about all the people that are going to be in heaven, you're going to have you know, the apostles, Peter, Paul, James, all the apostles. You've got the Old Testament saints, Moses and Aaron and Abraham, Noah. The, how exciting that's going to be. But the most exciting thing is that our Lord is there, that Jesus Christ is there. And one of the things that struck me as I read this was that I longed to be in heaven. But I hadn't thought too much about the fact that Jesus longs for me to be in heaven. And he, he says it, Father, I desire, and that the word for desire, in one, some versions it says wills, it's a really strong word that Jesus is praying, Father, I desire that they also whom you gave me will be with me. That was a really comforting thought to me, that the Lord wanted me to be there. It was not just about me wanting to be there. He wants me to be there. And the, when it talks about the glory which you have given me, and then that I had them, that Father, that they were going to have that glory and witness that glory, it was, the term there was not, it was not just observing, it was participating in. And we have plenty of scriptures that talk about the glory that we're going to have in heaven. And it talks about the fact that we're going to see him as he really is. And we will be in glory with him. That reminded me of Romans 8.29 again. For those he foreknew, he also predestined to become formed to the image of his son. That he might be the firstborn among many brethren. We glorify him now as we strive to imitate and be like him. I've heard it said that imitation is one of the best ways of praising someone. When you think about how a child imitates their father sometimes and how cute they think that is. But doesn't it make you a little bit proud because they want to be like you? That they adore you and want to be like you? 
when we have glory, we'll be imitating Son. When God glorifies us, that is an imitation of His Son. We're going to share in the glory of Christ. And that brings glory to God. Initially, we share in that glory now in some sense that we have the Holy Spirit and that we're saved and we become glorified in, in one sense. He makes it known at salvation as we are sanctified and are conformed to His image that brings glory. And ultimately, we will be fully glorified when we're in heaven with Him, when we know Him, when we see Him as He really is. I skimmed over a little bit at the end because we're running out of time, but I hope that this message encourages you to really think about how you can apply this Concern of Jesus that we be unified and that we be with him. These are the people that we're going to spend eternity with. Believers are the ones that are going to be in eternity for all times. So we should better start learning how to get along now, right? And I think for the most part we do that. But everybody has a struggle, I know, with certain people, certain places and times and events cause things to happen. And if you have any of those issues in your life... Jesus cares about it. I think that it would be prudent for us to examine our hearts and to think about those things and see if there's any things that we need to change in our own life to be more unified as brothers and sisters. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time together. Father, thank you for your word and how it convicts. Father, may we all examine our own hearts, not each other's, but our own. And may we find the places that we have weaknesses where we have not Father, yet fully come into the place of being conformed to the image of your Son, and may we apply your word to our lives. Father, may we be honest and open, and may we do something about it, Father, to make us be in more obedience to your word. And Father, that will glorify you as we do that, Father, and we anticipate that time of being in future glory with all believers, Father, and in the presence of your Son. May it give us encouragement to know that he is interceding for us even now. Father, helping us stay the course all the way home until that final day we meet you face to face. It's in Jesus' name that we offer our prayers. Amen.